caso. This afternoon we return to empathetic joy. And I'd like to focus especially this afternoon on the more on the causes of happiness rather than the fruits. Both are worthy of taking delight in. But focusing especially on the actual cultivation of the seeds, the roots of happiness. So others' virtues. Virtues in that whole bandwidth of ethics that we focused on yesterday. Practice of nonviolence, the practice of offering our goods to the world. And then on the deeper level, those who are devoting themselves to the active cultivation of the mind, the heart and mind, cultivation of samadhi, really tapping into the wellsprings of genuine happiness that are to be found within. And then those who are really in the active cultivation or unveiling of the insight, the wisdom that liberates, as well as those who have come to the completion, who have actually become liberated, taking delight in that. So that's a lot, a lot to take delight in. So generally, simply attending to the virtues of others in the, in the realm of ethics, samadhi, wisdom, all of that's very virtuous. Directing that same sense of gladness, of rejoicing, of appreciation, directing inwards, also very wholesome, taking delight in one's own virtue, one's own merit, very much part of the practice. And then as one attends more specifically to those who have manifested their Virtue, their goodness, their kindness towards ourselves. Again, it's still rejoicing. It's taking delight, appreciation. Um, but it's, of course, a bit more personal. It takes, it can express itself not only as delight, but also as gratitude. Right? Happy gratitude. Happy gratitude. And then we can ask, well, exactly, where does the gratitude come in? That is, is it just for me? If somebody does some act of kindness, some act of generosity, just for this person here, is that as far as gratitude goes? Well, how about my immediate family? If they do something for my wife, for my stepdaughter, my grandson? I think gratitude is appropriate, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're mine. Right? And we say, oh, thank you for helping my family. I really appreciate that. Right? Or somebody makes some really nice gift to the mind center. You know? I don't know what they give, frankly, but whatever they can give, they give. You know? Then one might feel, oh, well, thank you. Here we are. We're making use of it. You know? So, oh, well, thank you for making that nice gift to the mind center. That would be appropriate, you know? It's kind of like this is our home for the time being. Right? How about Chaitanya Pur as a whole? You know, some gift to the sports center, to the school. Well, this is part of the same complex. I mean, it's all Tanyapura, the land of bounty. So we can, have, we could, we could be grateful too for that, couldn't we? Yeah. And here we're living on Phuket. Well, maybe there's some real bounty that's coming from, from the central government in Bangkok. And they've just really made more bountiful, augmented, improved the quality of life here on our little island, Phuket. Then we could say thank for that, I think also. In other words, how far the sense of gratitude extends. Of course, once exactly, 
to how far the sense of I and mine extend. Right? If China should turn to the United States and say, you know, you people have an awful lot of debt that we're holding. We forgive you the debt. Let's just call it even. You know, trillions. Uh, we're just making so much money here, we don't even know how to spend it. And so, America, you're just debt-free. Have a nice day. I think all the Americans would say, gee, I never saw that one coming. <laughs> Thank you, China. Thank you, China. I really appreciate it. Yeah, because that was quite a heavy burden. Uh, then we, How about you Saudis? You're, you want to do what they did? You know, you still got a lot of oil left. How about you just cancel our debt? So the Americans would be very grateful for that. I'd be, I would be, certainly. I'm an American. I would be. Oh, thank you, China. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, you want a free Tibet too? Oh, now, now you really made me happy. <laughs> you want to give them total autonomy? You want to actually pour millions of dollars into restoring their monasteries? Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's really good of you. So how far the sense of gratitude extends corresponds exactly to how big your sense of identification goes. Your planet, your galaxy, your galactic cluster. So, but all in the same spirit, taking delight, taking delight in virtue wherever it manifests. When one simply sees an act of goodness, an act of generosity, of kindness, going in any direction, after some time, there may be such a sense of looseness, spaciousness, lack of borderness, no borderness, in the sense of mine and not mine, that you just see some act of kindness and you just want to go up and say thank you. you know, just thank you for bringing that into the world. You brought that into my world, into my universe. Not that it's mine as in a possession, but this is where, this is my home, this is where I live. So thank you, Brim, for bringing that into the same place I live. You know? So, gratitude. Empathetic joy. After a while, they kind of look like non-dual. Like there's no difference. So yesterday, I think it was, I was speaking about, you know, when we attend to other people, and we see sometimes they're really manifesting nasty things. Anger, belligerence, dishonesty, fraudulence, and so forth. Nothing to rejoice in there, any more than a doctor rejoices in his patient's diseases. Nothing to rejoice in. Right? But then, the, then, as a doctor seeing a little bit of remission of the cancer, or some really healthy cells, you know, where a lot of them have become cancerous, but some healthy cells, oh, there's something to rejoice in. Ah, your, your red blood cell count increasing. Oh, I'm going to rejoice in that. White blood cells, oh, well, nothing to rejoice in, but yay, red blood cells, keep it up. You know, so... There we have rejoicing, not rejoicing. Hedonically, that makes really good sense. Hedonically, in terms of what happens to us, and now I'll speak from a Buddhist perspective, when other people show us kindness, clearly they're acting out of generosity, their motivation is virtuous, the enactment is virtuous, we, we receive the goods, we receive the enrichment, the benefit, you say, oh, good karma manifesting. Right? On other occasions, people's mental afflictions are aroused. And out of mental afflictions, then they behave towards us. 
exploiting, lying, deceiving, manipulating, acting in self-centered ways, harming us in one way or another. Then from this hedonic perspective, hedonic Buddhist perspective, say, oh, negative karma manifesting. I must have sown some rotten seeds in the past, because here's the harvest coming. Oh, that hurts. That hurts. That feels bad. Yeah. Looks kind of simple. Maybe it's not quite so simple. I just had a massage. Just finished a massage. The woman who gives it is very good. She's very best massager they've ever had. She's very professional, really. Like more like a doctor than simply a person who gives you a nice rub down. And she asked me early on, do you want in terms of the degree of pressure, do you want light? Do you want medium? Do you want strong? I've had earlier massages that were fine. They were good. I said, let's go, let's go for strong. Let's go for strong. And if it, you know, just makes me go into spasm and want to scream at the walls, then we'll go medium, you know? <laughs> but I kind of figured if she can go strong, if she can give it all it's got, then that'll probably be more beneficial. Unless I just can't st- stand it. If it's just making me scream, then that's probably not so beneficial. So let's see what strong is like. If it's just making me go into seizure of pain, then we'll slack off a bit. But if her strong is something that I can still feel, rela- I can breathe into, right? Breathing or breathe out. Then her strong is probably going to be more beneficial than the medium, let alone have a nice day. You know, a little light rub down. Patty cake, patty cake, you know, hear your muscles. Oh, so I asked for strong. She's very good. She knows exactly the strong that's good for me. So I just finished massage. Then if you ask me, how did the massage go? How was it? Hedonically, I could say, ups and downs. It was good for a while, then it was not so good, then it was good, then not so good. Sometimes it just felt good. But then she, when she'd go in right in here and really press, that hurt. When she would go into other parts of the body, the inner, inner, you don't really care, but you know, it's parts of the body that are tense because there are parts of my body that are not in line where the blockages and so forth. So you go into some areas, it hurt. It hurt. So that's one way I could evaluate that massage. Overall, it was good and bad. On occasion, it felt good. Kind of like that one. see how hollow it is. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> little echo in there. <laughs> I kind of like that. I like it feeling lightheaded. And then other times painful. So I could say, how was the massage? Up and down. Good and bad. From a hedonic perspective, there's no question. Sometimes it was painful. Sometimes it was more neutral. And sometimes, oh, really soothing. Really soothing. So how do we grade that massage? Kind of like up and down, right? From a hedonic perspective, that's exactly right. Sometimes I was getting some fruition of bad karma. Because man, when she went into this area here, ooh, that bad karma ripening. When she's just kind of just rubbing here on the shoulders, good karma ripening. Then neutral karma, nothing much happening. So that's one way, one very superficial, stupid way to evaluate a massage. Right? Actually, it was all good. It was 100% a really good massage. I have no complaints, no criticism. Just keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. That was, it was all good from perspective of, I would like this body to heal, to balance out. 
I'm not coming here just for comfort. If I want comfort, I'm going to go to ice cream. I know what comfort is. I had some for lunch. It was good all the way through. There were no rocks in it. There were no, there were no, you know, hot peppers in it. It was just now that was a 100 from perspective of healing, balancing, sorting the body out, getting the energy to flow properly and so forth. It was 100% good. And that included very much the painful parts, which I appreciated. actually wanted to, you can do that again, you know, because I can, I can sense, I could feel it in my guts, I could feel it in the organs. Oh, she's doing what needs to be done. That was good. That was really good. I really, I'm kind of, kind of looking for, I know when it's coming. Like, oh yeah, she's got this one. Ah. Not, ah, happiness, ah, pain that I can release. It's 100% good from genuine happiness perspective. I wanted to heal the body and not just have the body feel good all the time. So, I think that actually is a metaphor for something much larger. Now, she's getting paid. So that's a very good job. I think her motivation is also very good. She really seems to genuinely care. Wanting to really help her clients. I wonder if her clients. So, very nice. Very nice. But even if her motivation were rotten, it was still a really good massage. Even when, if she's going into the painful area, if she was thinking, I'm going to get you, sucker. You know? <laughs> I'm going to make you squirm. <laughs> even if that were a motivation, it would still have the same, you know, it would still do what it needs to do. So I'm getting the benefit no matter what her motivation is. Because it was a really good massage. If she was just thinking, ching, 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 Thai bot, Thai bot, Thai bot, Thai bot, I'm getting Thai bot, lots of Thai bot. You know, it's still a good massage. If she's thinking, I can't stand these big, fat, blubbery, white-skinned farang, but, okay, whatever, at least I can make you suffer sometime. You know, if that were motivated, it's still a good massage. It's a good massage no matter what her motivation is. It's a really good massage. And I feel better now. So, to get benefit doesn't require that the other person is just like a bodhisattva all the way through. In fact, in, in this case, I think she had a really wonderful motivation. She was like just a very wonderful, professional, expert masseuse. Wonderful. The worst that might happen to us is, is if all of our hedonic desires were satisfied. Every day, may I only experience good things, only good karma ripening. May I only meet nice people who are just asking me, Alan, what can I do for you? Do you want any snacks? Do you want another massage? What would you like? I just want to make you happy all the time. Just surrounded by people smiling at me. We all want to make you happy. We're all here just to make you happy. What can we all do to make you happy? I went with my grandson to see one of the most popular movies for kids and made in a long time, Wall-E, the little robot. My grandson just bonkers over that movie, like so many little kids of his age, this little robot. You know? And in the robot, part of the story was, I remember quite vividly, there was people, people I think they were on an ocean liner or something, but they were all just made like a jelly. Anybody's seen it? You have to remember that scene. I think it was in Wally. I'm pretty sure. Is it Eastern Korea? Because you must have kids, yeah? Yeah. It, like they're just all, they have no bones. And they just lie around on deck chairs and drink. They just basically have hedonic pleasure all the time. It's like lounge chairs on an ocean liner. And they're just going, 
And that's it. After a while, they can't even walk. You know, it's just their blobs. It was like a whole bunch of jelly bean people. Just all like that. It's all of the hedonic desires were all satisfied. Never a rough day, never anything unpleasant. That would be the fulfillment of our hedonic yearning. May I never have a bad day. My meditation go always well. People always treat me nicely. Always have good health. Always just the right balance of temperature and weather and everything else. There is an aspiration to become a spiritual invertebrate. No bones. No backbone. No strength. Jelly. Spiritual squid. All the tentacles of attachment and no backbone at all. So if everybody treated it that way, in fact, it would be quite unkind. Parents who pamper their children, never discipline them. Always, oh, you want more jelly beans? What, what do you want? What more can I do for you? Oh, that's cute. You're throwing a tantrum. Oh, you're beating up other children. It's so cute the way you do it, though. My little tiger, you. you know. Then we know it. it's just terrible parenting. You're doing the child a terrible disservice to think no matter how you behave, but Mama loves you. And Mama will never scold you because I love you too much to ever scold you. And you just do that cute little thing you do. Beating up our little kids. It's so cute. It's good for them. It'll make them strong. Yeah. So we know that's terrible parenting. Right? Terrible parenting. So we shouldn't be terrible parents to ourselves. Always just focusing on, may I just have all good days, all hedonic pleasure. So when it comes then to attending to the kindness of other people, with this masseuse, shall I say she was kind, 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 mean, kind, 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 mean, 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 kind, mean, 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 kind. No, it was a good mess all the way through, and sometimes it was really painful. And that's what needed to be done. It really needed to be painful to break up some blockages in the body. And it's improving slowly, slowly. She's doing a good job. So, when other people come to us sometimes in need, not to give us something, but they need something from us, something that might actually entail some sacrifice, that we're not really eager to give, They're providing us with an opportunity to develop the perfection of generosity. And without them, we won't. If you're surrounded by rich people who don't need anything from you, well, you're just not going to develop the perfection of generosity. It won't happen. Sometimes people treat us badly, arouse perhaps some impulse, some reaction to retaliate. Because what they've done is wrong, unjust, intolerable. We see the impulse coming up. We recognize that impulse for violence, for retaliation. And we subdue it. We restrain it. They help us develop the perfection of ethics. Sometimes people treat us badly. Events go badly. We encounter adversity. Displeasure arises. And impulses of anger, maybe even hatred and malice arise. We recognize it, we apply the antidotes. And such people help us develop the perfection of patience. And without them, we'll never do it. So some people help us with the perfection of generosity, without which you'll never become enlightened. 
Some the perfection of ethics, without which you'll never become enlightened. Some perfection of generosity, as Shantideva says. When people treat you badly, oh, take delight. This is really good. This is really good. It's quite rare. At least where we live. Somebody really treats us badly. Especially if we're giving a lot of good out. It's not so frequent to get some really nasty, bad stuff coming back in. Oh, how good. Because I've been wanting to develop patience all week. I didn't have a chance. Everything was too easy. But here's a chance. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful. Developing perfection of patience. Developing develop perfection of enthusiasm. People helping us in that way. Helping us develop. The perfection of meditation. Those bad sessions that we really dread that you report on had some good days, but they had some really bad days. Those are the ones you should be really happy about. The good days, that's just like whipped cream. That's icing on the cake. Of course, that happens. Big deal. But it's the bad days. When you're really challenged, you're falling into dullness, the great union of dullness and excitation, sadness, depression, anxiety. Now, those are the good days. Because when you encounter those that's what challenges you to develop the skills of meditation. If it's going well all the time, how are you going to develop anything? If it's going well. What do you need to do? Go with the flow. But when the obstacles arise, when you start to dredge your psyche and disturbances of your energies, of your, ch of your chakras, your chakras and energies start getting disturbed, that's the good day because now you can really get something done developing your meditative skills to balance that out. If strong emotions come up, Troubling memories come up. Now you got. Now you have an opportunity. As long as they remain subconscious, submerged beyond the threshold of consciousness, how are you going to touch them? How are you going to get any benefit from them? There they are. They're subterranean. Right? When they come up, that's when you can learn from them. That's when you can really develop your meditative skills. When the stuff is coming up, not when it's just how are you doing? Okay, not bad. Whatever. It's when the stuff is coming up, that's when you develop the perfection of meditation. By grappling with, dealing with, applying your intelligence, your memory, your skills, honing your meditative skills to develop the perfection of meditation. And then, of course, the perfection of wisdom. So maybe there's a lot more to rejoice in a lot more to be grateful for than would be suggested if we view reality only from the perspective of the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. In which case, it was a good massage, bad massage. It was mixed. Because sometimes it felt good, sometimes it felt bad. Very superficial. Deeper, one feels much more homogeneity in terms of how the world is rising up to meet you, in terms of other people's behavior much more sense of just ongoing flow of gratitude, because no matter what's happening, here's an opportunity for developing love and kindness, here an opportunity for developing compassion, here empathetic joy, and here equanimity. No matter what's happening, probably one of those is going to be a really meaningful response. And how are you going to develop those if it's all just in your imagination? It's hard. You know how hard it is. But when you leave here, or when you're just venturing out, engaging with other people, here or afterwards, when you encounter that in what people call the real life, 
I say with a chuckle, you know. That's when really, that's prime time. That's the optimal setting where the, your reality is inviting you to respond with loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. And all of these giving rise to a sense of gratitude. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. Because how will you ever develop Bodhicitta without developing four measurables? Frankly, it's inconceivable. And how will we ever achieve enlightenment without developing Bodhicitta and perfecting the six perfections? So in this sense, the quality of rejoicing can be quite smooth, quite even, quite one-taste-like. With respect to oneself, how reality is rising up to meet you. Whatever is being dished up, the whole, one could say kind of the whole point of Dharma practice along a path is to develop your digestive ability. Your, di- your spiritual digestive ability. Right? So whatever comes up, you don't gag. You, pardon the phrase, you don't fart. You don't just get bloated. Whatever is coming up, you digest it. Sometimes it doesn't taste very good. I take Tibetan medicine regularly. It's part of my health maintenance program. Tibetan medicine, pretty much, the little pills, pretty much taste like dirt. There's some more bitter dirt, some a little bit sweet dirt, but overall, dirt's dirt. So I never, ever in my life have thought, oh, let's go for a snack. I want something yummy. Let's go for some Tibetan medicine. Well, yeah, if you like dirt, maybe if you're an earthworm, I don't know. But otherwise, you, you know, it's not for the hedonic pleasure. Right? But you're taking it, again, because it balances the system. And also, for me, having not a great digestive system, helps the digestive system. So one can assimilate everything else. So Dharma practice is really designed to bolster, to increase, to empower our digestive system so that whatever comes up, whether it's bitter, like some Tibetan medicines, Chinese medicines I've also had, some incredibly bitter, or whether it's something really sweet dessert, or some really nourishing rice and veggies, whatever it may be, whatever comes up, whatever life is dishing up from moment to moment, there we are. And just chewing it up and digesting it. In which case, whether it's bitter Tibetan medicine, whether it's dessert, whether it's rice and veggies, or a glass of water, the response can be to thank you all the way through. Because if you can digest it, it's food. And if you can't digest it, then it's not food. Tofu for, tofu for me is not food. I can't digest it. Okay, maybe one day. But for me right now, tofu, all that soy business, tempeh, tofu, not for me. I can't eat it. can't digest it. So I don't say thank you for that one. I can't digest it. Most of the stuff I can digest. So everything that we can digest, we can say thank you. Right? Including really bitter stuff. Stuff that doesn't taste very good, but really healthy. Whatever we can digest. But how can how much can we digest? That's not up to reality. That's up to what we bring to reality. It's not hedonic. It's genuine. Right? So this is where wisdom really comes filtering in into the cultivation of empathetic joy. The more wisdom we bring to it, the more familiarization with practice, the greater our ability to transmute everything that comes our way into nourishment for our own spiritual growth, spiritual unveiling, 
Then, sense of gratitude, empathetic joy, delight. Can be more and more homogenous, more and more even. Ongoing flow of gladness. From one's own perspective. On the other hand, just to be aware of multiple perspectives. And that if someone else treats us badly, because in fact, some mental affliction arose, and they're acting out of it, maybe it's very good for us. As Shandadeva says, if another person treats me with violence, out of a motivation of hatred, or malevolence, or greed, whatever it may be, This is in patient chapter. So for me, it's all good, because I'm getting benefit. This is exactly what I need to develop the perfection of patience, and I want to develop the perfection of patience. I don't want to be one of those jelly people in the Walling movie where just no bones, no bones, I can't even stand up. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be spiritually soft and flabby with no spinal cord, no bones at all. It's not what I wished. And to get bones, Tibetans call it Ningru, the bone of the heart. Of course, there isn't any bone in the heart, but it means some strength, some inner fortitude. The bone of the heart, Ningru. Semshuk, strength of your heart, strength of your mind. Well, the only developed way to develop that is by encountering adversity and dealing with it and digesting it, assimilating it. So, from, so Shantideva says, when people treat me like that, then from my side, I feel very grateful, very helpful. Because if I don't meet difficult people, how will I ever develop that inner strength, that equanimity, the forbearance, the fortitude? How will I ever do that if I'm just meeting, you know, whipped cream people, soft, sweet people all the time? How will I ever do that? Impossible. So as from my perspective, then gratitude. Thank you. Very helpful. Good. I needed that. Wanted that. Waiting for that to happen. Thank you. Not so common. On the one hand. And in addition, I'm also burning off some bad karma. That's good too. The more bad karma is burned off, the better. On the one hand. On the other hand, from your perspective, you've just acted out of malevolence with an intent to injure. It comes from misery, because that's where malevolence comes from, from suffering. That comes from ignorance. And now, in your pursuit of happiness, acting out of malevolence, inflicting injury, in your pursuit of happiness, wanting to be free of suffering, you're just compounding your own suffering. So while I'm getting only benefit, you're getting only harm. So from one's own perspective, even empathetic joy and gratitude but then rotating one's perspective 180 degrees over to the other side, feeling, oh, but for you, only compassion. Only compassion. So, the same event, same situation, another person treats us a certain way. From one perspective, response, reality-based response, empathetic joy. From another perspective, on the same reality, compassion. So it's all good. So, let's practice. 
right? A comfortable position. even though in public, with respect to the issue where you raised, if you hold no assumptions, you make no errors. If you make no assumptions, then you make no errors. And when both yes and no are wrong, are wrong answers, then having no questions is best. Mysterious talk. Olaso. You may begin the session with a sense of empathetic joy and gratitude, all mixed together of one taste, with this wonderful opportunity in such a conducive, supportive environment, such wonderful people around us, wonderful people to practice with, and indeed wonderful teachings and practice, all good with a sense of delight and gratitude for this good fortune that is manifesting now. Let's take full advantage of it by settling the body, speech, and mind in a natural state.
direct your awareness outwards to the world around you. Focus, if you will, first of all, on individuals or communities who are manifestly bringing good to the world, who are alleviating others' others suffering, enriching the lives of others, bringing joy to others, enhancing the environment, offering their goods to the world. Attend closely, and as you breathe out, take delight with a sense of appreciation and perhaps even gratitude.
and then if you will, to those who are really sincerely devoting themselves to cultivating the inner causes of genuine happiness. They may be almost invisible, living quietly in meditation huts, in caves. They may be anonymous. but with utter dedication exploring the inner resources of the human spirit. So they can know for themselves and share with us their insights and enrich our own lives.
attend to those who are cultivating wisdom. Those who are steadfastly moving along the path of liberation. Those who have found liberation. Those who are fully awakened to the lights of the world. Breathe out your delight and your gratitude. Turn your awareness inwards. Is there anything to rejoice in here in terms of your own motivation? Your way of life in terms of ethics? Your dedication to cultivating your heart and mind? and your commitment to liberation and enlightenment. Take delight in all the good you bring to the world. Inwardly and outwardly.
and release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature. Oh, yeah. So, very good question from Jason. I was wondering how the phases of the dying process are discovered since the one going through the process is dying (laughs) and thus can't report on it, as well as for the other transitional periods. When one rests in the substrate while while one's still alive, they're still embodied, correct? Not necessarily. When they do so during the dying process, at this point, are they still embodied? From outside, yes. From inside, no. This seems like a very interesting area for collaboration between contemplatives and neuroscientists. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Possibly providing an explanation for what is happening during near-death experiences and just generally discovering discovering mind-brain relations. Yeah, I... Could not agree more. Very fruitful area, the near-death experiences. Um, near-death experiences or experiences where, what do they call them? Actually, like post-death experiences, but people are clinically dead. You know, uh, Brain stops, no brain activity, no heartbeat, no nothing, and then the wonders of modern science, they bring them back. But, you know, they really weren't dead, as far as medical science can tell. So, it's a very, very good question, an absolutely legitimate question, that's for sure. And so how? Well, obviously for one who doesn't have 
the experience oneself, then it's an issue of faith. There's no question of that. Uh, very much like my belief in the existence of exoplanets, planets around other stars. I do believe it. I really don't have any doubt about it. I mean, the sources are such so such so good. These are first-rate scientists, superb technology, fantastic mathematics. I have no reason to believe they would lie about this. Why? Why? Why on earth would they lie? You know, where's the advantage to get more grants so they can lie more? It doesn't make any sense. So I think it's really most reasonable for me, rational, to have faith in these astronomers' knowledge, which is totally beyond my ken, and I cannot verify. There's no way. They could show me the data, the mathematics, you know, all of that, and I still won't get it. It won't be persuasive, because I haven't had ten years of training in astronomy. But I would say this is part of, yeah, that's part of my worldview. And so, for me, it's faith, and for them, I would say it's knowledge. I have faith that it's knowledge for them, that they didn't just think about this a lot and think, oh, gee, it must be true. And so, frankly, for me, it's the same. For me, it's the same. And that is when I read the writings of people like Padmasambhava, Tsongkhapam, and all this goes on, and so forth. For me, these are the astronomers of the month. I look at the training they received, and I've had some of it myself. It's just awe-inspiring. It's really impressive. And I've had enough training in physics by really superb teachers in a first-rate institution, Amherst College. I got really good education. Uh, I got some taste of what really good physics is like. You know? And I've spoken, and spoken times on at length, with world-class physicists, people like Anton Simonger, David Finkelstein, uh, Pete Hutt, my own mentor, Arthur Zions, wonderful scientist. I get some real sense of, oh, this is this is a path with, with real integrity. And I've spoken with Gen Chamawandu and Gen Lamrimba and Geshe Ratan and His Holiness. You know, I don't feel the same because one instills reverence and the other one instills very deep respect. They're not quite the same. One is frankly hedonic, and then there was primarily about genuine happiness. But the respect is very strong across the board, and that's why I still venture into this whole interface. So speaking from faith, but not just dumb faith, not unenlightened, well, not, I won't even speak of enlightened faith, but not uninformed faith, not blind faith. Um, here's the answer. And that is, you're exactly right, of course, if people are on a one-way track, the arrow of time, they're dying, 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 dead, and then maybe the body hangs out for a while, not deteriorating, but sooner or later something happens, it starts deteriorating, or it starts shrinking. Now that one's interesting. My dear friend Tony Karam has seen two cases of this, and I've heard of others recently, not ancient history, not so di distant that we say, oh, this must be a myth, this must be fabrication. No, really recently, you know, like within ten years, five years, ten years, of people... Ah, these really accomplished yogis where, of course, they go into the clear light of death. I mean, that's kind of a given. And so then no decomposition, the whole system stops. But then instead of after a week, two weeks, then signs of deterioration beginning. And then you see, oh, this is a dead body. It's starting to decompose. Let's burn it and get some relics out of it. Instead of that, believe it or not, this has not made it yet into the Guinness Book of Records or Ripley's Believe It or Not, because no one would believe it, you know, but I do. Because I hang out with these people, you know. I've been living with these people off and on for 40 years. After a while, there's some really well-earned trust. And what happens in a number of cases, even recently, is the body starts shrinking. This body that was abiding in the light of death, it starts to shrink. 
and the proportions all remain the same. And the body is just losing mass, but it's maintaining the same form, the same proportions, all of that. Shrinks down to the size of a doll. Been seen quite recently. It may continue shrinking. There may be nothing left. So that happens. Let alone rainbow body. That's been witnessed again within the last ten years. You know, where there's just there's no shrinking, it's just hair and nails, and that's it. That's all you get. So there are some pretty impressive displays in this as a culture I think was the most advanced contemplative culture on the planet. Having said that, do I think there might have been equally highly realized beings in Israel, in South Africa, in Russia, Germany? Could be, could be. But in terms of, is there, was there any other culture on the planet where you had one monastery for every thousand people? I don't think so. In that regard, that was really unique. And to some degree, again, the light's not burnt out. It is unique. It can be revitalized. It needs a bit of kindling and some oil. So, so that, there's that. That actually, that scientific data, some of it is clearly scientific data, corroborated. This whole issue of yogis dying, remaining in the clear light of death, that's been now studied by um, Richard Davidson, by other people. Uh, it does happen. That's not faith. That's just, are you informed or not? And there are yogis who have demonstrated this recently. And I spoke with Richard Davidson just oh, last December. He and I were at a conference together in Sikkim. And um, he you know, has the full support of his only Dalai Lama here. And they were waiting. They, they, they had a pretty state-of-the-art EEG cap and some other technology. And they're waiting for yogi, to, a really accomplished yogi, to die. And with the blessing of the holiness, as soon as they saw that he was dying, then you know, bring out the equipment and ask the yogi whether he's willing to put on an EEG cap, which is totally non-invasive. You probably know it's totally passive. And uh, so they got one. They got one just a couple of years ago. Uh, an accomplished yogi. And I think they said, I think Richie said he spent 18 days, I believe it was, clear light of death. Outwardly, no metabolism. Inwardly, no decomposition. So, from the Tibetan perspective, where is he resting for those 18 days? Clear light of death, not in the substrate. He might have hung out for a few hours in the substrate, breaks through that into clear light of death, and now he's just welling there. How do we know that? Well, we don't. In terms of knowledge, we don't know. But what we do know is he was displaying something for which there's no medical explanation. And I asked Richie about this. Because he and I have known each other for 20 years now. I have a lot of respect for him as a scientist. And he's a wonderful man, very very warm-hearted man, good man, very ethical man. So, Richie, what did you come up with? When these people, you know, when they're days into the clear light of death, is there any EG? That's the kind of the basic question. Is there any brain activity at all? Did the heart stop? Or is it going pitter-patter-pitter real subtly and the Tibetans don't know about it? Is there any respiration? The Tibetans don't know because they don't have technology. Well, it looks like no respiration, no heartbeat. What about the EG? And then he got really cagey. And not being out of tricky. There's nothing, there's nothing devious about this man. I know him quite well. Straight, he's a straight arrow. He said, we got some data we can't explain. And we don't know whether it's an anomaly of the technology or whether it was an accurate measurement. We don't know. And therefore I'm really reticent about saying what we came up with because it was just too weird. And so we need more subjects. Bring on the dying yogis. <laughs> we need more. 
you know, I thought it'd be yes or no answer, you know. Yes, there was EEG. No, there was EEG. No, there was no EEG. But it turns out to be more complicated than that. All of this is to give a better background, that this is not blind faith. And people can demonstrate that. Clearly, they can do something with dying process that modern science does not know how to do, and therefore has no explanation. So that already shows, hey, there is some expertise here. We don't know how to do that. Maybe it's just a trick. But whatever it is, a trick we don't understand. Right? You don't get neuroscientists going clear light of death. Not yet. They could come. And then the shrinking business. I mean, that's not been scientifically corroborated yet, and yet people with total integrity, perfectly good eyesight, Westerners and Asians, have seen it. Well, I'm not going to... I know these people. I'm not going to doubt it. It's happened. And then one step removed, rainbow body. So, however far one's confidence goes, mine goes all the way, because I've been hanging out there for 40 years, and practicing. A little bit comes up in practice. So I have a lot of confidence. So, what's the answer to your question? Well, of course, they get recycled. And that is a yogi of that caliber dies lucidly, enters into the clear light of death lucidly, emerges from that into the transitional process of the dhammata, ultimate reality, visionary experience, incredibly archetypal, lucidly, recognizing all the displays, the simply displays, creative displays of one's own pristine awareness, nails that one, maintains lucidity, then moves on through perhaps out of the sheer force of compassion, moves on through the bardo of becoming, transitional process of becoming, lucid all the way through. So similar to a lucid dream. Really powerful parallel. Which means, it's just what you want it to be. If you're really, really lucid in a dream, nothing happens to you. You're shaping the dream as you wish. You're never the victim. So you're shaping your bardo. You just, you're, you're like, huh? Okay, I think I'm ready to go. And then you have the transitional process of conception. You can do that. You can do that lucidly, and then hang out, you know, in a warm tub for nine months. <laughs> do that lucidly. Actually, in the Kala Chakra, the Kala Chakra system, it says during the last trimester. During the last trimester, it says there you are, obviously inside the womb. And it says just you have massive, during a relatively brief period of time, a massive recall of past life experiences. Almost like a Rolodex, just... <laughs> Neuroscientifically, it said during the, the last trimester, at least part of the last trimester, it said that up to 90% of the time, based upon physiological evidence, this unborn child is dreaming their dream state. There are good physiological markers of that. So strong inference. One might wonder, one is a materialist, what are you dreaming about? Warm and gushy, warm and gushy, warm and gushy. One long hell of a boring dream. Warm and gushy, warm and gushy, warm and gushy. Gushy, 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 warm. I mean, there isn't really much happening. You don't have much of a data bank to draw on, right? So maybe that's true. One long, boring dream. Or maybe what looks like a dream physiologically is going through the Rolodex. Past life. Could be. Being born lucidly. Coming out into the world lucidly. Coming into childhood. 
and then getting these spiritual prodigies who pretty much as soon as they can start talking saying, I want to go back to my monastery. What am I doing, what am I doing here? <laughs> Take me back to my monastery. Or one of the, the first accounts I read of this was in a, a book, came out, oh, it must have been more than 50 years ago, The Way of the White Clouds by Anagarika, Lama Anagarika Govinda. And he described his teacher, Tomogeshe Rinpoche, an extraordinary adept in his past life. Extraordinary. Then, according to the Tibetan account, he took birth in Sikkim, in Gangtok, I believe it was. So he's being raised in a little Sikkimese boy, Buddhist country, nice place to hang out. And he being a, a, a lama of, of great repute, really quite renowned, very accomplished. Of course, after he passed away and they gave gave a couple of years, two, three, four years, passed by, then they sent out search parties. Search party knew where to go. So they head and told Gangtok through divination or whatever it means, but Buddha Gangtok. Little boy, and I read this book about almost 40 years ago, so my memory's not 20-20, but you, anybody can check this. So this party traveling incognito, that is, a, they, they're not saying, hey, we're on the lookout for tukus, because otherwise all the Buddhist mother, mothers come out and say, here's my baby, it's a very special baby. <laughs> my, my baby is a tuku, I'm sure of it. <laughs> then they just have, you know, candidates all over the place, so they have to keep it really kind of low profile. So they travel as merchants, as whatever, and so comes along this little cadre of monks, probably traveling as, maybe as monks, but maybe just looking like ordinary lay people. And they're honing in, it's almost like that, <laughs> it's almost like they had a little homing device, like what's it, like the, what is that satellite thing, what's it called? GPS, yeah. <laughs> like they handle the GPS. <laughs> beep, 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 you know, right, right to his house. And this little kid comes out and sees him coming. And he runs back into inside his house and says, Mama, they come come to take take me back to my monastery. Pick him up, they do the test, yep, got the right one. Take him back. He looks at the monastery and said, Oh, you put up a new building here, I see, since I was dead. You know? <laughs> so if you have that kind of memory, then if you can remember a new building in your monastery that wasn't there the last time you were there, then there's no reason you shouldn't be able to remember what the dying process was. And and the descriptions of the Barda. So, in terms of scientific evidence, there's a, a group of wonderful heretics, and I've met them, very smart people, uh, terrifyingly open-minded, bold, audacious, intelligent, and critical. They're at the University of Virginia in the Division of Perceptual Studies. Like they cloak what they're doing in a uh, you know, veneer of respectability. And they study things like reincarnation. And they've been doing it for decades decades. Ian Stevenson passed away. He did it for years. Very good protege. Jim Tucker. I met him. Very smart guy. Straight arrow. Really seeking truth. I mean, that's what they're... They're not Buddhists. They're not Hindus. I can't tell what... I don't think they're anything particular, religious-wise. They just want to like to know the truth. And they're looking at evidence that is deemed heretical. So the, the scientific community basically looks at it, closes its eyes, holds their nose, and keeps on walking until they can't smell it or hear about it. And, and, and they'll say things like, it's problematic. And they move right on. Okay. That's If you don't know what to say, but you want to ignore something, the word is problematic. This is very problematic. There's no way to refute that. 
how do you say, no, it's unproblematic? There's no ref refutation. So they know they're on safe ground. Just say, the evidence for reincarnation is very problematic. And I could ignore it forever. That makes them feel very comfortable. And people want to be comfortable. So this group there, they've been studying this for decades. Children who allegedly have past life recall subject them to the most scrupulous scrutiny they can to see, you know, if there's any other way to explain their alleged memories. Well, what came out of this quite interesting, and I write about this in my book, Mind in the Balance, is that among the many children who had veridical knowledge of events taking place in somebody else's life that they claim was a continuity of their own, not only did they have correct knowledge, which could not be explained by any other means, beyond reasonable doubt, but there were quite a number of cases where some of these children recalled not only who they were, what their spouses, and all, in the details of the past life, but also, also recalled, of course, how they died, but also recalled the intermediate period and reported on that. And they have dozens. And so they're scanning through that. And these, these are kids from all over the world. They're not all Hindus or all Buddhists or Taoists or something like that. They're scattered all over the place. And then combing through the data, seeing were there, were there any irregularities in these children. Of course, these kids don't know each other. You know, they're independent reports. And were there any regularities in how they narrated what were your experiences after you died and before you were born? Right? And they found there were quite, quite some regularities, quite some significant ones. And moreover, I remember Jim, I think it was Jim Tucker wrote about this, is that those children who had these detailed memories of what it was like after they were dead and prior to their being born, those children tended to have more accurate memories of what happened before they were dead. In, in other words, past life. They had more data, more accurate, more quantity, more accuracy. So that's the answer to that, is that for those of us who have not had that experience, we may look upon this, and if we study it thoroughly, perhaps some confidence or faith arises. Maybe not. In my case, it is written very, very strongly. But that's how that happens. Is you go through the whole process and then you, you narrate it. And then, when you, have a, when you have a culture that's been doing this for a thousand years, that's kind of a long time, a thousand years, where there was this growing density of people who are within the whole civilization, really devoting themselves one way or another to spiritual practice. And when you have six million people, even if it's one percent, that's an awful lot of people. Well, if it's one-tenth of one percent of six million people, that's a lot of yogis. That's a lot of yogis. So then it's not that you know, amazing that you know, rainbow body and this and that and the other thing. Because there's a lot of people. And you have a whole society that's there to support it. So that was really quite a treasure. And it's not lost. Not entirely. Not beyond recovery. Like a person who's suffered a very severe automobile accident. But you look at it and say, yeah, with a lot of physiotherapy, we can get you back on your feet. So something like that. Um, but in terms of future research, there's an awful lot that can be done if the fear of the scientific community subsides. And that's really what it boils down to. The fear of heretical questions and heretical evidence. Because that evidence shouldn't be there. It just shouldn't be there. Not if the materialistic paradigm is right. It shouldn't be there. So I think the parallel with the Michelson-Morley experiment back in 1887 is very strong. And that is the the whole mechanistic view of the universe 
especially as it was launched by Newton, who was a profoundly religious man, very deeply religious, wrote extensively on theology. So he was hardly an atheist or a materialist, absolutely not. But he was the one, in terms of the physical universe, who came out with this incredible theory of how things bump into each other, mechanics. Uh, and then applying that to not only to matter, but to electricity, to light, Maxwell, electromagnetism. Then it was assumed, as I said, and I'll say it very briefly, it was assumed almost universally in the scientific community that to explain light in a rational way, there had to be a real substantial medium, an empty space, that would ripple, that would then make possible what we knew to be true, and that was light demonstrates interference patterns. It's a wave. It's a wave. Something has to ripple. I mean, that's just the way things have to be. Something has to ripple if there's going to be wave interference patterns. And so there had to be a luminous ether. There had to be. Otherwise, the whole worldview was really wrong in a very deep kind of core way. And, other, and that is, the world is not entirely mechanistic, but they were sure it was because the evidence was so strong for everything else. So when this evidence came along, it was really quite nerve-shattering, I think, for a lot of people, because it, it just should have been there, even though there was no evidence. There was never any evidence for the luminous ether. When doesn't, something doesn't exist, it's hard to get evidence for it. But then when the evidence came out negative, that there really isn't any, that positive negative, we now know it's not there, then that must have set an awful lot of people on edge, because now they know there's something deeply flawed, profoundly incomplete, it doesn't take anything away from Newton. It just says that some of the underlying assumptions were not universally true. Newtonian world is a limiting case. Enormous explanatory value. Still is, always was, fantastic, but it's limited. And there are some aspects of reality you cannot explain within that domain. So this is how physics progresses. And so with Einstein and then the whole quantum mechanics, then we see, yes, within, for a very, fairly large chunky stuff, moving at non-relativistic speeds, Newtonian physics works extremely well. It's right. It's correct. But as soon as you go down to small level, it's not. Then you need quantum mechanics. As soon as you start speeding, traveling at relativistic speeds, it's not true. But it's more than that. Fundamentally, you got it wrong. And that is, in Newtonian physics, you're assuming there's absolute space, absolute time, absolute matter, and absolute energy. And that's just not true at all. That's fundamentally true. False. And that was only demonstrated with modern physics. So in a similar fashion, I've spoken just recently with a very good neuroscientist. I'll leave her anonymous, but she's very, very good. She's done some excellent research in meditation. Really very good research. And so we were at a conference not long ago. And uh, I can't remember whether I said this in this retreat or not. It kind of blur after a while. But I commented to her. She was on a panel and I was on the front row and I said, you know, the Dalai Lama, and she was a panel with a couple of other scientists and with Matthew Ricard. And so I asked the scientists particularly. Uh, I commented, first of all, that the Dalai Lama has said repeatedly and very publicly that if the scientific community comes up with any evidence that clearly refutes any Buddhist assertion, we'll drop the Buddhist assertion. Because we're looking for truth and not just protection of a dogma. Anything. You show us compelling evidence and we'll throw out even age-old beliefs. So he's giving a real openness there. So I turned to the neuroscientist and said, if the contemplatives come up with really compelling evidence 
that refutes your materialistic views, will you be equally open-minded as the Dalai Lama? And I, I think I have some skills, and one of them is to make people really uncomfortable. <laughs> so I think I succeeded that day. So we had an interesting conversation. It was friendly. It was a friendly conversation. It was not. It didn't go there for combat. It was, a, I think, it was a legitimate question, and it wasn't combat. It was a friendly. Uh, invigorating kind of conversation. And what it really boiled down to is if a contemplative has insights that show that some fundamental assumptions like absolute space-time and so forth, but fundamental assumptions in neuroscience are just wrong, how will the yogi demonstrate that? Because it has to be public. You have to show us and yours is internal, whereas the Michelson-Morley experiment was public. It was out there, third person. Your contemplative experience is first person. So if a yogi has that experience, how can you deliver the goods? I mean, we want to be open-minded, but how do you do it? Just saying it? You can say anything. You know, I'm a Buddha. Well, that make you a Buddha, right? But where, there's, where they're sitting here is this, and she raised this. And she said, you know, she's, she introduced herself, hello. I'm a materialist. I believe the mind is the brain. I'm a neuroscientist. And it's kind of like that's all... If you're a neuroscientist, you have to be a materialist, which means you have to assume mind and brain are the same. And she started her presentation that way, kind of showing... I think she was kind of showing her credentials. I'm a materialist. I'm, you know, like... I'm, I'm a member of the party, you know? And here we are. There's my credentials. And now I get to talk with authority because I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a materialist. The mind is the brain. And so I probed her on this. She said, you know, it's the only way we can imagine how mind and brain can interact, causally interact. Take drugs, your mind alters. Get brain damage, your mind alters. Electrically stimulate your brain. Your subjective experience alters. There's causality here, you know. And she was, and so how can we understand that if the mind is anything other than the brain? If the mind is not physical, how can we possibly... We can't imagine how that could be true. If the mind is not physical, then how does physical stuff hit it? How does it hit it if the mind isn't physical? And then I countered and said, yeah, and of course you're aware of the other side, the, the, the euphemism of the placebo effect. Subjective experience also has a physical impact on the brain, right? It causes synapses to grow, neurons to develop, alters the chemistry of the brain alters the structure of the brain as well as functioning of the brain. Now this is all scientific fact. Mental training, placebo effect and so forth and so on. It's a big two-way street. And it's kind of like, yeah, and if the mind isn't physical then how can that possibly happen? It's the only way we can understand it. And I'm just I'm just hearing 19, 1880 physics. If there's no luminous ether, how do you explain light? Because it's the only way we can understand how light propagates and shows wave patterns is if it's if there's an ether. There's no evidence for it, but it's got to be because it's. And of course, what you have to do is think differently. And so, is there a Michelson-Morley experiment for the mind and how it interfaces with the brain? The fact that people can dwell in the clear light of death, that would suggest maybe there's some a problem here. You know? People shrinking, now that would be really weird. <laughs> or Herbert Benson, research uh, phys- uh, 
uh, physician at Harvard studying people practicing Dumong up on the dock, up at, at uh, Dashijong, Dashijong, seeing people generate so much heat in, in their bodies that they were in Ladakh in February at 15,000 feet, putting on a cotton nightie, climbing up to the mountain and lying down on the dirt overnight, getting up in the morning when the, when the sun rises, stretching and walking down the mountain. That shouldn't be possible. They should be not only dead, they should be stiff dead. Ladakh in the winter at 15,000 feet? That's brutally cold. And they're lying down in a nighty, a cotton nighty, Milarepa gown. You know? And so I was sitting with him when he was giving this presentation at a conference in D.C. years ago. And he said, we have no explanation. That, that shouldn't be possible. But again, just to come up with anomalies isn't enough. There were, there were anomalies. So that's what we have right now, anomalies. And there is this much larger, non-materialistic, non-reductionistic view of the mind and its relationship with the body. We get, for example, from, from Buddhism. But we don't yet have a Michelson-Morley experiment. Something like that. Well, I propose one. Nothing original. Just updated. And that is Buddha Gosa, go back to Buddha Gosa, 1500 years ago. He states, if you've achieved very high degree of samadhi, while you're resting there, you can simply direct your attention like a laser pointer to the past. Like a laser pointer, they can illuminate whatever it's pointed at and make manifest wherever you're directing, back in time. Back in time. So if you're resting in samadhi, like having achieved shamato or even higher, first, second, third, fourth jhana, while resting there, the mind being utterly luminous and transparent, and the substrate consciousness. And I'm going to introduce some terminology you don't find in Buddhaghosa, but I don't think it's too alien. The substrate consciousness being the repository of all memories, and the brain simply being the access mechanism. As long as you're working in the coarse mind, you can lose your memory. It's not because the memories are gone, but the access mechanism is, is defective, and you can't get to it from the perspective of coarse mind. If you're working from the perspective of subtle mind, then what's ever happening in the brain not that relevant because it's not operating on that level. So if you're deep in samadhi, Buddhaghosa describes exactly how to do this, then you're in this luminous, open space, access previous memories, and he said from that perspective, you can simply direct your attention back. You can give yourself a target in a past life, illuminate it, come out of meditation, and report. How did you die? What was the bardo like? Past life, 10 lives ago, 20 lives ago, depending on the power of your samadhi, how big your laser is, um, you can you can manifest, uh, make very evident, just seem illuminating by sparking by by. Ah, it's really like just going into the hard drive, and just getting the right target and having the image come up. And so, if we had a contemplative observatory, let's say with twenty, thirty, forty people, achieving shamatha, so they can rest in the substrate at will. Then we can have some open-minded, but very critical and very bold, brave scientists coming on board and say, look, what we all want here is to find out what's true. And there may be some eggs broken in the process, assumptions that are shattered. Maybe there will be some shattered on the Buddha side, maybe some on the scientist side. But if what we're after is truth, there should be, we should be proceed fearlessly. And so let's work together now. We've got, we've got, let's say, 20 20 people have achieved shamatha. 
They can all tap into and rest in the substrate consciousness. They got their laser pointers ready. And then you scientists, now you're the skeptics here. I mean, we're all skeptics. Everybody's skeptical of something, other people's beliefs. So Buddhists, Christian fundamentalists are very skeptical of other people's beliefs, right? And Richard Dawkins is very skeptical of other people's beliefs. So everybody's skeptical. Everybody's a skeptic. So, but the scientists quite, quite naturally and rationally be skeptical of Buddhist beliefs. Why not? It's somebody else's beliefs. So the scientists could then research and find out aspects of each of these individual 20 people's past in this lifetime. The lifetime they believe in. But data points that they would go off and interview relatives, friends, childhood friends, and so forth, unbeknownst to the yogis, and get some data points. Facts. When you were 10, you lived here. You knew this little girl. When you were 15, you did this on Tuesday, April 15th. And when you were 20, you had this for lunch. So the yogis don't have any idea what's coming up. It's like a quiz show. Okay? And then, the scientists have gotten this background data on all the 20 yogis. I said, okay, you ready? Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Uh, we're about to give you a series of questions. You ready? Okay, go for it. What did you have lunch for? What did you have for lunch five years ago on Tuesday, April nineteenth? You didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> you know, and then go in and see whether they can get it. Give them an easier one first, something a month ago, just to get it warmed up a little bit. Just like on the squid shows, give them a ten dollar a ten dollar question. You know, like you know, what's your mother's first name? <laughs> And then give them more difficult, just like in the quiz show. You know, the $500 question, who wants to be a millionaire, that kind of business. And give them questions all, back, all the way back to early childhood. And if the yogis, got 20 of them, you got a good database. If the yogis are coming up with valid answers, that's pretty impressive. And the conclusion from the scientific perspective would be, which are already concluding, is that meditators are able to use their, much, their brains much more efficiently the non-meditators. That's coming out more more frequently now. You just know how to you, you know how to run the machine better than most people do. With less wear and tear, less effort, so you really don't have to drive it. So imagine that happens. This is all hypothetical. But imagine they're actually getting right answers all the way back to childhood, blowing the minds of the scientists. Uh, and demonstrating to them if you got if you have shamatha, you really have extraordinary, potentially extraordinary Memory, recall. And then, if you've got, for example, just among the 20, imagine one who's 50 years old, and the person has just gotten correct answers all the way through, you know, is almost a millionaire, right back to, you know, memories at two, two years old, three years old, still getting them right, you know, very impressive. At which point, then, the scientist asks a question, all right, here's the target, you're 48, you're 48, no, 50 years old, right? 58, 50 years old, good. Um, 52 years ago, where did you live? And describe in detail your home, personal acquaintances, what's your situation? Go for it. 52 years ago. That's the target. 
the yogi, one of three things is going to happen. The yogi goes in, comes out rather quickly, said, I got nothing. I'm looking at a blank screen. That'll make the materialist smile. Good, you're looking where there was no data. Because you didn't exist anywhere 52 years ago. <laughs> Thumbs up for materialism. And you meditators just have really good brain control. That's a possibility. Another possibility, person comes up with something, describes a person, situation, and they go do research. Did such a person exist? Because given details, no such person existed. Oh, you just went into fantasy realm. <laughs> For materialism. Right? Or, option number three. Person goes in, comes up with detailed data, turns out to be true. Oh, thumbs down for materialism. Thumbs up for Buddhism. We all throw a party. That'd be interesting. I call it the Alaya Project. <laughs> so that would be a very interesting collaboration. Why it has integrity is that there is a real possibility for negative data. That is, false memories at any point along the line. No memories, when you're looking for something, you know, past life, no memory, no data, or accurate. In other words, that's fair. It's not just, can you prove reincarnation, or you didn't prove it, okay, but like that, no, there's evidence, go either way. So that would be interesting. And if we compare how much such an experiment would cost to support 20 yogis for as long as it takes for them to achieve shamatha, compare that to, oh, one fighter jet. I think it's 30 million a pop. This is cheap. This is really cheap. So I think we should do it. Not that expensive. Bring an open-minded scientist. Get people to do shamatha. And then, of course, don't stop there. See the passion. Texture, turkey. Rainbow body. Unless there's something better to do. <laughs> so, this is the recruiting office is right back there. So, <laughs> sign up. Something very, very short, Morgan. We're he heading off to dinner. There are people that are currently um, able to remember, like every day of their life, just as a subtext for your study. Oh, sure. There are people with eidetic memory. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and there they are. Uh, what's most interesting here, though, is if none of these yogis have such memory, that is, in ordinary, when they're operating in a coarse mind, if they have ordinary memory. But then they go into substrate consciousness, and suddenly they're eidetic from there. If they're eidetic, I'm on the top, then not so interesting. But if they have ordinary memory, especially, I mean, it would be interesting to study these people before they practice shamatha. And that's it. And so this is a longitudinal study. Otherwise, they would just say, well, this is one of those people that remember. Sure. Sure, sure. But this is not, this is not a terribly complex research project. Um, it would be longitudinal, it would be expensive, but again, if we compare the expense of this to any large-scale scientific study, this is peanuts. But it requires the subjects, training and so forth. It requires an observatory. An observatory, a place for doing long-term a conducive environment for long-term, hassle-free, that is, just not having hassles from the environment, where you can just get down and sit down like, like Gautama under the Bodhi tree and say, I'm sitting here until I'm finished. 
and having people that have that kind of resolve. I've now found a conducive environment, enough funding, 10, 15, 20 dollars a day. I've got the practice, got the conducive environment. I got no visa problems. That's enormous. No visa problems. And so I'm sitting here until I'm finished. You get 20, 40, 60 of those and change the world in a really good way. So, there's a possibility. But in the meantime, we have more pressing matters. Dinner. Enjoy your meal. See you tomorrow morning.